This is Out of Context with Caitlin Hartland. I am Caitlin Hartland. You are indeed listening to Out of Context. And as in the first episode, I hope you've got yourself a nice warm beverage or a cold one, whatever your preference. No judgments here. I've got a cup of tea myself. You may hear me periodically sip it. I'm hoping to uh, get a contract with an ASMR company after this. We'll see what happens. (laughs) But for today's episode, I am very excited to welcome a dear friend of mine and a wonderful advocate for the queer community. His name is Doug Judson. I gave him a brief mention in episode one as he is one of the founders of Borderland Pride here in Fort Francis. He's also a counselor here in Fort and uh, he's got his hands in a lot of pots. Hi, Doug. Hello, Caitlin. I'm so happy that you were able to do this. And uh, I am even more excited about the topic we're going to cover today because I was absolutely transfixed when you first told me about it. So why don't we just launch into the topic so that everyone knows what we're talking about today? Before I get to that, though, I sorry, I uh, I teased a little too early. <laughs> um, just to build the anticipation, first, I wanted to talk a little bit about how Doug and I know each other and how we both came to be such loud <laughs> queer voices in the community we live in. When I first moved here two years ago, I was introduced to Doug through a mutual friend. Uh, his name is Russell. I know him from back home in Nova Scotia. And Doug and him, well, you guys met in Toronto, right? I think so. Yeah, Toronto or Ottawa. And then, you know, by virtue of you posting you're moving to Fort Francis, all the stars align because that's how these things work. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I got to know uh, him sort of, you know, through another person probably years before we connected. But it continues to be the case that every person I know from Nova Scotia or New Brunswick knows everyone else from <laughs> Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. Like, I, yeah. I think that you guys draw straws and decide who gets to leave. <laughs> that's the Maritimes for you. Yeah, there is usually an exodus because none of us can find jobs. <laughs> Uh, I love my province, but that needs to change. Um, (laughs) So we connected through Russell. And then when I learned that Fort Francis was having its first ever pride, I obviously jumped in headfirst and Doug was all too happy to have me do so. Um, And then that has led now to this year, we established the very first LGBTQ2 social group in Fort Francis. And that was how today's topic came up was our last meeting, which was in February. We should have had more by now, but unfortunately, the pandemic has gotten into the way of that. But at that meeting, we always have a little bit of a chat and socialization before the meeting actually gets started. And Doug approached me and was very excitedly telling me about this discovery he had made that one of the first trans women in Canada to have been sort of publicly outed, I guess, was someone who lived in Fort Francis. And it was as early as the 70s that she got national attention. And uh, her story is largely unknown in the queer community. I had never heard of her before this. It's really it's really something. Yeah. Like I came across it perhaps, um, you know, typically I came across it um, in a Facebook thread locally where people were talking about oh, who's, like, the most famous person to come from Fort Francis? And someone sort of posted posted it, I think, in uh, derisively, like, oh, the first person who, and, you know, this is probably a good point to asterisk, uh, we're talking about historical trans issues and historical reporting on a trans person and some of the language is not. Yes, the terminology is quite dated. The terminology is dated. We are not making these editorial choices. So I think just an important distinction for people, perhaps a trigger warning, that we are using words that would not necessarily be accepted today. But anyway, uh, in this uh, social media post, the person sort of derisively, you know, pointed out, oh, didn't the first person to have a sex change come from Fort Francis? And and I kind of looked at it curiously and uh, 
sure enough, someone posted a link to something online. And so I was able to do a bit of research and I discovered that there was this individual who was one of the first Canadians, at least Canadians that was known about, to have undertaken uh, what we would today refer to as a, a gender confirmation surgery or gender affirming surgery. It seems to be even some uh, mixed language around that at this point. And that's been, it's, it's been really fascinating to follow her journey, actually, just over the past few months. Yeah, you fell down quite the rabbit hole. Um, but prior to this interview, Doug actually sent me some reference materials to read through, and he had quite a few. <laughs> um, I will admit I didn't get to read all of them, but I read what I felt was uh, most relevant, and I really I became intrigued by it myself. And by the end of it, I almost ended up feeling like Diana is someone... Oh, that was her name, by the way. The name that we will use because that's the one that's been used most often when she had things published about her. She goes by Diana Boylo. But in learning about her and kind of seeing her quotes in the news and having read a little bit of her book, it seems like she's someone I would have gotten along with. Like, I think we would have been friends. She seemed to have a really good humor about her, especially considering all the things that happened to her that we will soon delve into. But yeah. Yeah. I think we should, yeah, we should get into, you know, sort of what her life trajectory looked like. But, you know, I think why um, Diana's story is so interesting is that there is um, a a fairly well-trod media narrative around her. Um, uh, Not only did she have this uh, surgery and then, you know, publicly come out and talk about the surgery and give media interviews about the surgery and about what, um, you know, what had happened to her body and what she wanted, uh, how she identified and how she chose to live. Um, But there was, you know, there's other reporting about other events in her life. And she took it upon herself also to work with uh, a writer to develop a biographical work, which is, it's no longer in print, but it is available in PDF for free on the internet. And it's called uh, Behold, I Am a Woman. And it outlines her experience right from her youth up to the point where uh, she has had the surgery. And I think there's a bit of creative liberty that's been taken into the writing of it. Some of the timelines, I've noticed some reviews online of this book point out that there are definitely some fudging of numbers as to age and years. Yeah, well, even her age, for sure. That seems to be widely debated. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, some, some question marks and asterisks there, but... Um, you know, it's a really compelling and interesting account of somebody who has taken a journey that there would have been no one else around them in their generation who they could have hold their hand along the way. And that's really fascinating, especially for us, because we get to be LGBT people today in uh, Fort Francis that can look to this story with a reminder that we are nothing new in this community, despite that we continue to be uh, a minority here. Well, something I found really interesting when I was reading through some of the materials was that even the doctors at the time were saying that this was something that has been around for centuries. Like this is, even then, it wasn't new. It just wasn't talked about. And that, I think, is the main advantage we have now is all of the resources and information that we have access to and the ways that we can connect over the internet. That has brought our community a lot closer together because we're not as isolated as we once were. And people are more aware now that not only do we exist, we are normal and it's okay to talk about, (laughs) which is, I'm so happy it's happening in my lifetime, but I wish it had been better for Diana. Yeah, like let's maybe try to just map out some of the path that Diana followed. Yeah, we'll start with her early. Exactly. So um, early life. 
as I recall from you know the material that, uh, that I looked at, and I reviewed some of it today, uh, Diana was adopted, I believe, as a toddler by a couple in Manitoba. Yeah. Uh, they eventually made their way to the Rainy River District and initially settled in uh, Rainy River, uh, where her father worked in forestry, and uh, I, I believe the mother was, was simply a homemaker. Um, Eventually, they relocated to Fort Francis, where Caitlin and I are situated today, and that's where much of the story around Diana's teenage years and sort of those formative times picks up. There's uh, a number of interesting events that happen, and, uh, and the biographical work sort of goes to some length to talk about Diana's efforts to uh, sort of curate a wardrobe for herself of you know, women's clothing at the time, and uh, from the shoes to the wigs to the evening gown, and to do so in Fort Francis, like, uh, would be quite an undertaking in the 19, probably 30s or 40s. Uh, and so so that's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of commentary on experiences that uh, Diana had growing up here, um, I, I think, that are not so different from experiences people continue to have today in that recognizing as a young person that there is something different about them. They feel that they are different than other people, but can't quite put their finger on what exactly it is. And yet they're aware that children, being the honest devils that they are, are also aware of it. That's a pretty universal experience, I think, for queer people in general. Absolutely. So... Yeah, you know, I, I, I see that you follow this narrative of this person, the story, then it's told in her own words, told to the author, um, who is Felicity Cochran, and you see that story that still plays out today. So that's really neat. And then, you know, as the story evolves, there's uh, there's a quite a bit of humor in the book, too. And, um, you know, she talks about time. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm using her pronouns that she chose. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a period in her life right now where she would not have been recognized or identified or out as someone who used those pronouns. No, that's but right. Exactly. So it's interesting to read, like, there's quite a long vignette in one of the early chapters of the book about um, the anticipation of Halloween uh, in the same way that queer people <laughs> anticipate Halloween today, because it's a time when Diana could dress as a woman outside of her bedroom. And it was acceptable. And, and it's acceptable. Yeah. And she's got, a, she's got a cover story. And, you know, she can see what it's like to, you know, move around other people wearing clothing and presenting herself in a way that, that matters, that she wants to be seen and presented as. And anyway, there's, it, it seems to have been a wild Halloween night because uh, <laughs> at some point she ends up falling into an open grave site at our local cemetery. As you do. Evening, evening gown and all, which is a very... <laughs> A very desperate housewife thing to happen, but that's kind of the you know you see sort of this um, undercurrent of queer humor that we still have today at our own circumstance throughout her story. Yeah, vintage queer, really, all of that story. Um, something that confused me a little bit though was in reading the different materials and sort of following different timelines as they had been recorded by different people. It seemed like initially her parents were not aware, but they had a doctor in Fort Francis who essentially gave her. The diagnosis, which, of course, wouldn't be used today, but in the 1950s, I think, which is when it would have been, uh, Dr. Harold Chalice, he was the one to tell her that she was a transsexual, which obviously is an outdated term now, but that was new to her at the time and to her parents, and he was the one to sort of convince them, like, allow her to live as a woman. But later when I was reading about a trip she took to Winnipeg and she ended up...
ended up getting into some trouble when she was about 17 years old and ended up having uh, the police come. Um, her parents were shocked to see her in women's clothes. So I'm not really sure when she would have met Dr. Chalice and how persuasive he was in talking to her parents about allowing her to live as she is, you know, as she was. But um, yeah, so I'm a little confused about the timeline there, but it looks yeah. like eventually her parents were accepting because even the book is dedicated to them. It's really interesting. And you know what I what I kind of took away from it? There's a quote that when we were talking before you started to record, there's a quote from the book. And I don't know if you have it in front of you. Oh, yeah. About, from the preface. Yes, absolutely. Uh, where is it? By no means has my life been a series of tragedies. I've never really taken anyone very seriously, least of all myself. My life has been a combination of laughter, fear and sadness. Yeah, I, I love that quote and how it sets up her story, because I think in many ways her story might have taken a very different arc, but for the fateful connection between Diana and Dr. Talis in Fort Francis. Yeah, if she had um, never come here, who knows how her life would have gone. Who knows? Like, here we had this old-timey physician who was informed of fairly contemporary concepts of gender identity and was willing to sort of practice those in this setting, which would have been far more remote and rural and, you know, in many ways, small-minded than it is today. Uh, and I think that that's really fascinating because you could certainly, and, you know, I think you see this, that, you know, at the time, if a doctor, if a person in a, in a position of, of relative power to most people is a physician, at the time, that would have been significantly augmented. And so you see the parents willing, I think, to place much more trust in that person than they might today. Yeah. So you could imagine if it had been a different physician taking a very different approach and, you know, kind of taking a very like, oh, we got to sort this out, this isn't right. And you could see her going down a very different trajectory and potentially a far more tragic one. And I think that, you know, we have modern day contemporary statistics on, you know, sort of what the mental health outcomes and self-harm uh preponderance is among LGBT and specifically trans people. So, oh, yeah. There's a direct correlation. There's no question. Yeah. And so you know, I think that's like such a fateful connection in her story because we have her make that, forge that bond, the parents uh, form a relationship of trust. And there's even a suggestion in some of her interviews that the, because she was adopted, the parents sort of were investing, she thinks, more than they might have for their own child to make sure that she was protected and safe and always had mm. a supportive environment. And so the family uproots and they leave Fort Francis and they go to Thunder Bay, which is like, a, well, today it's four hours away. Back then it was probably like a two-week odyssey through the bush. Or a train ride, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they go to Thunder Bay, which might as well be the other side of the world. And... Um, begin living in a different way with their daughter. Which is so impressive. Like, I keep thinking about the time in which all of this occurred. Like, even other physicians wouldn't have supported Dr. Harold Chalice's view. There are doctors who would refuse to work with other doctors if they even kind of delved a little bit into this area. And so the fact that he was not only willing to recognize it in his practice, but to apply what he had learned to a family that was struggling, like, it's just incredible to me. Yeah, and I think we should talk about how this sort of was exposed to the parents as well. So there's a story told in the book 
about how the parents went away for summer vacation. And um, what is amusing is that for summer vacation, they moved from Fort Francis to Emo, which is 30 kilometers away. (laughs) (laughs) That's so northwestern Ontario. (laughs) So they went to Emo for, for the summer and left Diana alone in Fort Francis, where she had more liberty to, you know, dress as she wished in the home and to, and to make plans to see if there was an environment she could explore her presentation more publicly. So Diana goes on a very momentous trip to Winnipeg, yep. takes the train and stays at a hotel under a pseudonym and is eventually outed there through what she calls a woman's intuition, sensing that something is amiss. Mm. Uh, The police are contacted, and in short order, uh, her parents come and round her up in Winnipeg, and that's where they begin having more honest and uh, family discussion with Dr. Chalice. So wait, was she arrested because someone suspected she was trans? I don't recall exactly what the situation was in the book. I don't know like if there was any basis for her to be uh, charged, even at the time. But certainly there was law enforcement engagement. Okay, so and there maybe wasn't an actual arrest. It was just like they were her parents were called by the police to come get her because she was underage, I think, was maybe it? That's probably part of it, but I mean, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, the old-timey constabulary of Winnipeg was a very trans-friendly place. Yeah, probably not the most progressive at that time. (laughs) Perhaps perhaps not, just an inkling. (laughs) So after that, though, that was when her parents sort of acquiesced and were like, okay, this is our daughter? I don't think the parents knew prior to that time that there was sort of this innate, deeply held self-image in their child. And I think that it took that moment where suddenly, and, you know, again, with, with uh, you know, full apologies to modern terminology, they got a call from the cops saying, oh, your son is cross-dressing in Winnipeg. Mm. Come and get him. Yeah. Ugh. Which, I mean... We know what politics and emo are like right now around LGBT stuff. Imagine being on summer vacation there in the 1940s and getting Ugh. that phone call. Yeah. If it's not good in 2020, just imagine back then. Yikes on bikes. <laughs> <laughs> no shade being thrown about a recent council meeting whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh you know, from there, uh, you know, Diana's story unfolds, and, you know, in a lot of the reporting um, about her, she moves around. She spent some time in, in the West. She spent some time in Toronto and Winnipeg. She seems to develop skill as a legal assistant working in law offices, and uh, she lives as yeah. a woman. She was a stenographer at one point, I believe. Because mm-hmm. she eventually ends up in Toronto, and for a brief time, she was in Edmonton, and I, I read something, I can't remember which article I was reading, whether it was the Toronto Star or Globe and Mail. It might have been the Toronto Star one, because that one was quite comprehensive. But it mentioned her having been in Edmonton and getting arrested with a few other friends. They were hanging out in a parking lot and just, you know, causing havoc, nothing like terribly criminal just getting rowdy and so the police arrived and upon discovering that she was as they said a man dressed as a woman 
she was then submitted to a psych evaluation and it was shortly after that that she moved from Edmonton to Toronto and then then unfortunately her life got very public because of a car accident. Yeah, I get the sense that some of these early moves were probably triggered by being outed. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's not really explicitly said, but they are fairly significant relocations. And when you think of the time um, in our history, it is like it's a less big deal right now to like, you know, fly off to Vancouver for the weekend. Right. But to uproot oneself from Alberta to Toronto very quickly. That's a big uh, move. It's a fairly big move, and especially for... I would say an individual that isn't in like the upper professional class, from what no, I can tell. Not terribly affluent, I don't think. No. So, yeah, she gets to Toronto, and uh, there is eventually a situation, and this is where Diana comes on to the national scene. So, Diana is behind the wheel of a vehicle with her friend. Uh, there's an accident on Highway 401, there are criminal charges brought against Diana, and at that point, there is a series of reporting about her in national daily newspapers. Yeah, I actually want to just read some of the headlines. I have uh, the materials in front of me here, and they're all, they echo kind of the same sentiments, and they're all, uh, apologies again to anybody listening in 2020. This is, I mean, this was the 19, early 1960s that these articles were published, um, but one of them, dressed as woman, Man acquitted, sobs. Another one, woman driver, 32, found to be male. And dressed as woman, man goes on trial. All male jury acquits driver in June death. That one I just found odd because it's saying everything about the jury but nothing about Diana. Which I guess is kind of not the worst thing because she was getting so much negative attention at the time. But I just thought that one was really odd in general. All male jury. Okay. <laughs> like, what yeah. does that have to do with anything? <laughs> it, it's, uh, there's a reference in one of the articles about how, uh, it, you know, she chose at the time to be tried by judge and jury. And in that process, you can challenge certain jurors that are proposed if you feel that they're not going to give you a fair shake. Mm. And it seems that they had to eliminate a number of men that came forward to be on the jury because once they were advised of Diana's identity, her situation, uh, there was a clear prejudice. Oh, okay. That makes more sense then. Yeah. So, you know, I think about that for, for a second, too. Like, you are on display in court. We have, we have an open court. This is a thing that exists today. If you go to court, anyone can go in there under most circumstances. But... You have a parade of people who've been called in for jury selection, and you're being outed to every single one of them. Ugh, yeah. And you've also just been through a traumatic incident where your friend died. Like, I can't even imagine what she was going through. And she, I believe, had actually an attempt on her life not long after all of this. Well, and... Uh, her own. I mean, I, did, I don't mean someone tried to kill her, but she unfortunately tried to kill herself. Yes, there's uh, uh, there's discussion of that in the in the in some of her interviews. I think also through that experience, there was a misunderstanding or a no understanding at the time in the criminal justice system about 
where do you house this person if they are to be held in custody? Right. You know, we had, we still do, um, you know, gendered jails. We do. That much we haven't advanced on. <laughs> it's, yeah, there. there's a lot in the year we're in right now that is still kind of a head scratcher as to why we aren't further along. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems that in much of the reporting, it's odd. Like, you know, you think of uh, a criminal case where someone has lost their life, that the focus would be on on that person. Mm. But on, instead... Yes. It's, uh, it's all about Diana, and it's about, in many ways, objectifying and sexualizing her. Yeah, that was something I actually wanted to touch on. One of the articles, this... Oh, it killed me. It was the one that was in the Globe and Mail, and it was it went into such cringeworthy detail about what she was wearing and how she presented herself. And like it just it sounded as though someone had written a fluff piece in Glamour magazine about a celebrity walking the red carpet like it was it weirded me out. But the quote that I wanted to share was that um, she later appeared for more photographs in a black mini, which showed off her legs like (laughs) Yeah. Oh, just completely objectifying her. And this was an article. It wasn't about the the trial or anything. This was later on in the early 70s when she was receiving surgery. And that was heavily publicized because at the time it was said that she was the first in Canada to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at one of the other articles. This one's from uh, 1962. And it describes her as a legal secretary wearing a slinky black dress, black gloves, and high heels. Gross. Um, She wears a high reddish blonde bouffant hairdo as the charges are red. Like, how many men are being described that way at that time? None of them. No. (laughs) 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 I mean, it paints quite a picture. Yeah. It's like when uh, male authors are going into overdrive detailing um, any description of any woman, even if she's not relevant to the plot. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. any chance to talk about her curves and the way the <laughs> light hits her breast, you know, like, ugh. Yeah. It's, think harder, guys. <laughs> I, I think that a lot of this is it's caught up in the, uh, you know, the boys' network of media, but also the very dated understanding of gender versus sex versus, you know, expression and so forth. And I think that things were still very elementary. And so, you know, at the time, this was probably the most diplomatic presentation of these concepts in the media industry, which is shocking. I guess that's fair. Yeah, because at least they aren't villainizing her. So there's that, I guess. Like, that's uh, about the most positive thing you can take away from that. But it's interesting you mentioned kind of the old boys club of media, because in that same article, they refer to the radio men after they had cleared the room. And I was like, hmm, as a female radio host in 2020, that's, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting light on my industry. Yeah, you sort of get an idea of people with very, like, New Yorkish accents and short pants and cameras with giant bulbs on them. Yeah, what's the scoop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very gumshoe. <laughs> yeah, she seems like a great dame. I wonder why she's in so much trouble. 
exactly. And, you know, I, I think also it's important to recognize that the institutions in which this is playing out, so the legal institution, the court, but also the media institution, have come a long way since then. But we also continue to see sort of choices in how people from marginalized groups are described mm-hmm. or their issues are described in the media. Uh, sometimes it's more subtle, more nuanced today, but it's still out there. Yeah, definitely. And, well, uh, any number of articles that have been published or even obituaries of trans people who have died and they use the wrong pronouns. Mm-hmm. And it's... I don't know if it's more disrespectful to do it after they've gone because they can't defend themselves, but it's disrespectful no matter what. Yeah. You know, one one reflection I had reading these old reports as well is, you know, you said like, oh, at least they're not villainizing her. But I was kind of like, aren't they? Like, think about it. Like, think about all those old timey Disney movies mm. and the queer coding of all the bad guys. That's true. And bad girls. Jafar was um, so gay. He didn't want Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted power. He just wanted power. Yeah. So it, I, I wonder sometimes, like, is this a version of villainizing? Is that this uh, creating this 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 boogie person? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I, I think there might be some weight to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually brings me to the fact that we are recording this in 2020, and it's only been in recent years, like within the last decade, maybe, that um, trans people have had any rights like that have been recognized by government institutions and so forth. Yeah, you know, like I, I practice law, and, and certainly I'm not steeped in human rights, but I dabble in a lot of LGBTQ2 legal issues. And they're important to me. And I think what's shocking is that this is sort of a an area in our history as a people that has only really come into fruition in our generation. Yeah. Uh, like sexual orientation uh, and those equality rights have a little bit more history. But when you get into gender identity, gender expression, we're talking like the 2010s when you start to see these concepts entrenched into human rights legislation. And if you visit any comment section on any social media, you can see how far we have to go. Absolutely. It's best to stay out of the comment section. I feel like that should be a disclaimer for this (laughs) entire podcast. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah, don't read the comments is uh, probably a a brand you should look into. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if I can get that copyrighted. Probably not. I'm sure someone else already has the rights to it. (laughs) You know, one thing I was thinking about in reading about Diana, too, is this idea that so much of our understanding and our openness is informed by the language that we use. Yes. And, uh, you know, you, you see this tension today in the debates around uh, trigger words and sticks and stones and all those fights that happen. But the thing is, the reason people point out discrepancies in language and insist on language is that we derive so much meaning from it. Yes. And I think that there is perhaps not a purer example of that in our human rights landscape and our legal architecture than the experience of trans people. Absolutely. Because what you see in Diana's story is even the most progressive people in her corner when she was a young person in old-timey Fort Francis, they're using medical language and pathologizing her identity. It's at best the term transsexual is used. Diana herself, in one of the interviews, talks at length about the concept of pseudo-men and transvestites. Oh. 
And uh, I'm not casting an aspersion on her. I think that she's also a product of the limited development of many of these concepts and of not having access to people or experts in this field like we have now. Yeah, it's not like she could go to the library and look up things about trans people. That stuff just didn't exist at the time. And if it did, oftentimes it would be taken off the shelves. So No, absolutely. Like, you know, for the same reason that young people in our age, like born in the 80s, grow up knowing they're different but not knowing know why, not understanding why, like, that's like a long-standing, like, lifelong trajectory for many trans people because maybe you never find that person that you wish to emulate. Yeah, what are you to do if you don't have a role model in your life? Like, that was something I went through. I didn't know any gay people. It was never talked about. So knowing this thing about myself, it was... It wasn't as though I wasn't aware of it. I just didn't know what to call it or what to do with it because I had no frame of reference. And that's very much what Diana's experience was and what uh, the experience of a lot of queer people is, even now in rural areas, especially. Absolutely. Like, I think, again, Diana's story, like the critical linchpin in her ability to have this, you know, for better, or for worse, a fascinating life by what I've read. Yeah has hinged on the ability that she has someone who is able to open a door and give her some concepts and tools to work with to understand herself. I would love it if I could talk to Harold Chalice, but I assume he's dead now. <laughs> I I would think so. I actually, um, in the, tr- the most recent article about Diana is by Katie Dobbs of the Toronto Star, and it's a few years old now, and uh, it does indicate that Diana died in 2014. Yeah, I read about that because someone had tried to get a hold of her and then discovered that she had passed. Yeah. I think it was a friend of hers. It wasn't wasn't the writer of the Chatelaine article in the book, was it? I Felicity? believe it was. I was Ms. It was Ms. Cochran, I believe. Okay. And, uh, you know, what's kind of interesting about how it's described, too, is there was this decision, I think, on Diana's part after being misunderstood for such a long period that she wanted people to know, like, this is my identity. This is the procedure I've undertaken. This is what my body is. This is how I live. And she made those deliberate sort of choices to not just self-actualize, but to share it. Yeah. And I think that a person does that to a point, and then it's alluded to a little bit in Katie Dobbs' piece, that she got to a time where she was like, you know what, I also just want to have my life. Yeah, she's like, I've told my story, I've, you know, beaten it to death, now I would like to just be left alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I kind of respected her for that, because I I get it to a degree. I mean, obviously, I haven't had the same national tension that she did, but it does get exhausting kind of doing that work and having to explain to people over and over who you are and why it's acceptable. Well, and it's, it's you know like I think about the work that I do and you know I'm not a I'm I'm not a trans person and I don't have those challenges, but I'm involved in various LGBT organizations and causes and I love them and I think they're important and I like the things that we've accomplished through them, but you get to a point where you're like you know do I want to do this next year and the year after that probably. Do I want to do it five years from now, or do I want someone else to do it? Yeah, and it's not that you want to give up. It's just that you'd like to pass the torch to someone who can get more of a benefit out of it. Well, and personally, I start to question, like, you know, am I 
the person who's really the vanguard of these issues. Right Should now. I be the voice for this? Yeah, no. Yeah, like, you get a little and, bit of imposter syndrome. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I kind of sense that maybe that's going on with Diana's story. Yeah, to a degree, I would definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good place to end our episode. It, uh, ooh. Time sure passed quickly, but I'm going to uh, come back after I have let Doug go and I will uh, give you some resources for um, more information about Diana, as well as some resources for uh, at least information about trans rights in Canada as it stands now and uh, that kind of stuff. I don't profess to be an expert on the subject, but I simply would like to make the information available so you can peruse at will. And like Doug was saying, Diana's book, uh, what was it called again? Behold, I am a woman. That was it. Thank you. And if if you Google it, you can find it in PDF on the internet. I'm going to find a way to have that link on social media, at the very least on Facebook, because I know Instagram is tricky with links, but for sure on the Out of Context Facebook page, you'll be able to find links to all of that stuff and uh, copies of stuff that Doug has sent me as well, because there were quite a few articles that I think a lot of people would take great interest in, especially the star one, because it is so comprehensive and it gives sort of a timeline of how different trans stories have been reported over the years, which was really interesting to kind of see laid out. Great. Well... Thanks so much for making time for me. And, you know, I um, I want to underscore that I hope that we've approached talking about this with the requisite sensitivity. Um, you know, neither of us are trans-identifying. I generally don't like to be on panels that are all white guys and <laughs> do things like that. So, you know, I, I am cognizant of that. Yes. Um, I'm cognizant and, you know, it's at sort of at the edge of my comfort that we're using terms that I think that people who are in this community would not appreciate today. But, uh, you know, this is a learning process for all of us about some of these issues, self-included. Like, despite that I'm in the community, I'm not an oracle. And I think what's fascinating about Diana's story and then as now is that it challenges us to think outside of all the shortcuts and the framing that we have wired into our brains from day one. And it goes right down to pronouns and everything else and how we categorize the people and things that we see. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate uh, your perspective on all of this. And I would like to echo Doug in saying that we are both very aware that we have a fair amount of privilege as cis white people. And we definitely would love to defer to people who know more than us. But we are limited by where we're at. <laughs> and we had well, to do this interview remotely even right now, thanks to the pandemic. But um, as we have more episodes, I would love to have people who are from these communities and can speak for themselves because I don't want to speak for anybody. Well, and I think it's important you're doing this. You are creating queer media content from a very unique location and geography informs so much of Canadian experience, which, you know, if anything qualifies and putting air quotes around that, (laughs) um, us to talk about Diana is that she's from here and we kind of have this retrospective duty, I think, to celebrate her story. Yeah, to honor her. It, to honor it and to give it the respect that uh, that it maybe hasn't had when it first was um, being told. Yeah, posthumous respect is always uh, better than none at all. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the Out of Context podcast. That was Doug Judson. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Caitlin.
Well, I sincerely hope that you enjoyed my chat with Doug Judson about the story of Diana Boylo, one of the first trans women to be recognized in Canada, who lived for a short time where I'm living now, Fort Francis, Ontario. And we've now reached that part of the episode that I promised would be a regular feature on Out of Context in episode one. Here it comes. Are you ready for the wit and the pure brilliance of the title of this feature? It's Context! (laughs) That's right. So the way this feature works is I have an email address set up for the podcast, and it is where you can send me all of your ideas for future episodes or anything you would like me to include in an episode. So this time I received an email from Darren, and he said, My name is Darren. I would like to suggest a topic for one of your podcast episodes. A topic that is dear to my heart and brings me to happy love tears whenever I think about it is the found family trope found in various media. So I took Darren's suggestion to heart because that is definitely something that I have found very relatable myself. And it isn't that I personally didn't have a supportive family. I am very, very lucky and I know how fortunate I am to have had a family that was supportive of me. But not everyone is so lucky. And so people do, especially in the queer community, end up finding a different family, one that isn't related by blood, but is related by circumstance, belief and all kinds of things. And what it ends up being is a support network where maybe you might not have had one otherwise. So I thought that was a wonderful idea. So wonderful, in fact, that's going to be episode three. And I'll be chatting with Darren himself about it because he had a lot of ideas about examples of found family in media. And if there are any Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans out there, this will be the episode for you because we're definitely going to touch on that. Darren is a huge fan. But if you would like to be part of the context feature on Out of Context, all you have to do is email me at outofcontextpod at gmail.com. It's basically meant to be listener interaction. So if you have a story to share, a sentiment about the queer community, questions, advice, info on resources, whatever, send it my way, outofcontextpod at gmail.com. Out of Context with Caitlin Hartland.